Hello, welcome to Highbrow. I'm your host, Mina. And okay, so today is an extended version of the video that I put on YouTube, which was on celebrity houses, basically unpacking the appeal of the architectural digest tours and MTV cribs and the Vogue 20 questions or 30, however many questions, um, where they take you through celebrities' home and ask questions. Basically, our fascination with the way celebrities live in their homes and how they decorate them. For this episode, we're also going to be building on it. So we're going to be talking about HGTVification and also some celebrity neighborhood feuds because those are always fun and why not? And this episode is coming at a very opportune time because I am back in the process of redecorating my own apartment. There's just like a lot of things in the apartment that are not fully put together because uh, we don't really host a lot of people because I also think it's a Brooklyn thing to just not host your friends very often because at least like for us, like we don't really have friends who live in our same suburb and so we usually just like meet in Manhattan when we're hanging out with people. It's just like easier. There's no reliable like Brooklyn to Brooklyn transport like the way that the train systems have been designed are all so that the trains lead into the city except for the G train but that's like it has its limitations as well so because of that I definitely took a pause in like looking for things for the apartment um like I wouldn't say it's not fully decorated it is somewhat decorated there's just like certain things that I've like been looking for for months but have been like dropped off my priority list because you know we're not hosting people and therefore like I'm like okay well I this is not a necessity that I get a new couch because my cats have like fully scratched up my current couch (laughs) but then also I don't know I wasn't like inspired because I didn't really know what I was looking for and the reason is my tastes have always leaned more towards like Victorian Rococo but that doesn't really work in a New York apartment like I do have some pretty antique objects in my apartment but really antique stuff is very bulky you know like Victorian furniture is extremely bulky and it just wouldn't look nice in an apartment because it would just take up too much square footage and I didn't really have a vision for what else I like so yeah I just like put off searching for things for a while right now I'm kind of leaning towards mid-century which I know is like kind of been on trend for the last several years so it's not interesting or new but I Went to the Villa Necci, which is this preserved house um, when I was in Milan, and it is decorated in a mid-century-esque style. I don't know if that's the exact uh, architectural style. Okay, actually, let me look this up. Okay, totally wrong. Um, Google tells me that it is Italian rationalism fascist architecture. Oh, I do not like that. <laughs> what? And Art Deco. Okay, um... Well, I'm definitely not into the fascism element of it, but trust me, if you like look at some of these photos of the Villanacci that are online, it's also uh, where House of Gucci was filmed, like for part of it. It's just a beautiful, beautiful house, and it just made me inspired because a lot of the pieces in there, I mean, it was a big house, but it was like a lot of the furniture was very sleek, and I feel like it could be easily copied (laughs) copied in a cheaper way into my own apartment so yeah 
Okay, that's my like interior decorating adventures. Uh, let's get started with the episode though. The question that I asked, of course, as I do with these types of episodes, was what is the ugliest interior design trend to you? And I got so many funny answers. Like I got so many intelligent answers. I think this is probably the question that I got the most answers to, period. So um, I had a difficult time picking and choosing, but thank you to all the submissions. Architectural Digest has built a bit of an empire on the celebrity homes interior business. AD has been doing celebrity home spreads in their magazines starting from at least 1964 when they did a feature on Mickey Rooney's house, but most of us are familiar with their YouTube page that I mentioned before where they've published a series called Open Door um, featuring, you know, tons of celebrity home tours from Gwyneth Paltrow to RuPaul to Troy Sivan. It's somewhat similar to Vogue's 73 Questions video series that usually takes place in a celebrity's home, but uh, instead of asking them 73 pre-planned random questions while they walk us through their hallways, the celebs in these videos are invited to really pause and showcase every curated room in their house. But you know, AD did pioneer this type of content. One of the earliest examples of the celebrity home tour I can think of is the White House home tour in 1962 that then First Lady Jackie Kennedy organized, aptly called a tour of the White House. This televised tour, which was cast on CBS and NBC simultaneously on Valentine's Day, was meant to showcase Jackie's famous White House restoration project where she resolved to make the White House a living museum by restoring the historic integrity of the public rooms and displaying the very best of American artwork, furniture, and decor. United Press international correspondent Helen Thomas recalled Jackie's feelings on the White House before the project. An aide told me later that Jackie thought the White House looked like a hotel that had been decorated by a wholesale furniture store during a January clearance. Ate them up, Jackie. <laughs> Public anticipation about the tour was great, not because people were interested in the White House, though I'm sure some people were, but because they were interested in Jackie, who would be narrating the tour. As Mary Ann Watson writes for the Presidential Studies Quarterly, it was the possibility the president's wife would reveal something more about herself during the 60 minutes in which she willingly took her place on America's center stage. The cover of TV Guide the week of the broadcast, a close-up shot of Mrs. Kennedy with slightly tousled hair and direct gaze, suggested the TV tour would be a more intimate, candid affair than it turned out to be. While it was definitely a little awkward to watch now, <laughs> the program was a success at the time. Many of the 56 million viewers who tuned in were so moved by it that they sent letters and telegrams to Jackie, thanking her for her gracious hospitality and the privilege of being her guest. Granted, I feel like Jackie Kennedy kind of ascended the title of mere celebrity while occupying the White House, like she was literally the first lady, but I think her home tour is a really good example of the public's growing fascination in the 60s with the idea that TV could bring us closer to the lives of people we watch movies of or read about in the papers. The way Jackie breaks the fourth wall by addressing the camera directly and therefore speaking directly to the viewer makes us feel like we're actually in the room with her. Ultimately. The success of Jackie Kennedy's tour led to other celebrity documentaries aimed at female audiences, including A Look at Monaco, which was Grace Kelly's tour of her home and lifestyle in Monaco post-marrying the prince, the world of Sophia Loren, and Elizabeth Taylor in London.
Oh, girl. Okay, so for me, I think of the ugly century design trend is open cabinets and kitchens, and it's not the idea. It's the execution. Like, it makes no sense. It's not useful. Now, suddenly, all the things that you want to store have to be cute. Um, You have to worry about dusting them. Like, you have to worry about stuff getting inside of it. Like, half the time, it's just, it's not right. You shouldn't have that. Not every kitchen needs to have, like, open cabinets. It's not useful. There are some kitchens where it looks good. There's some people that can make it look good. But, like, you're getting rid of so much storage space. Like, it's it's too much work. Your kitchen should be useful. Also, open concept housing and housing that should be open concept. Like, why are you taking a beautiful old home and ripping all the walls? Some houses need walls. That's going to fall down. I love you. Bye. Oh, my God. Yes, I'm in total agreement about this because I also do not want to be like a set dresser every time I unload my dishwasher, every time I'm like cooking in the kitchen. Like, things are going flying. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, And it's just like a lot for me to even be in the kitchen making my own meals and not just eating like chips or something or just like any other kind of rabbit food I have lying around. So I have to incentivize myself to actually do chores. And if I have to do more chores after doing the essential chores, it's it's not going to work for me. Like that's not motivational in any way. I'm just going to live my life a mess. And everyone's going to be able to see it because it's an open kitchen cabinet situation. <laughs> I've gotten like other responses of people submitting where they were like, I don't like open plan, open concept as like a floor plan option. And I kind of get that too. I think right now um, it's really popular to build these like modern infrastructures that don't offer any actual features in them. For example, I feel like the whole open shelving, it's like people installed those shelves because there was no cabinet infrastructure built into their house that they bought. And rather than being packaged as a lazy design choice that whoever built this house was doing when they built the house, usually if they like flipped the house and they just like didn't want to do anything actually nice before they sold it. But rather than it being like transparently known as that, People have to like repackage the idea of open shelving as this new glamorous thing that we're all trying to do. And granted, even though my mom is an architect, I don't have that much architecture knowledge. So I don't know if it's technically more work to put up more walls, but it feels like that would be the case, right? Like it seems like to create more rooms, it would be more work. And I think that's another thing, like rather than like building out nice rooms, like cool designed rooms, a lot of these house flippers have just decided to go open concept and not build any rooms or build any walls. And it's a sign of laziness because they don't really care about the house they're building because they're just trying to sell it off to someone else. But it's repackaged as this like, oh my God, it's so open, so much space. And, you know, going even further down this down this rant, like the idea of just like painting everything white, um, you know, like that whole landlord meme of like painting over the outlets white, just like painting everything white, uh, painting the walls, painting the floors just to make it look newer. None of these choices actually took thought and care and a design eye. It was just like something that was really easy to do is easily marketable because it shows light and it shows space. But in terms of like actually living there, it makes it more difficult because you have to install your own shelves, 
which are easier to do than installing your own cabinets, which I think I think we both can agree that that's the more practical design choice. And a lot of the times the cosmetic landlord fixes, they're really cosmetic and they hide just like bad infrastructure or um, aging infrastructure. So, you know, floors, I've talked about this before, but my boyfriend used to live in an apartment where the landlord had painted the floors with wall paint which made them really difficult to clean rather than just replacing the floors and updating them because they were really old floors. It would have costed more, but it would have been nicer and it would have just like caused less damage to the infrastructure of the house, but they don't really care because they're not living there. So I love discovering more sustainable ways to refresh a wardrobe, and that's why I'm super excited to talk about Newly, which is a subscription clothing rental service that lets you try out new styles without having to fully commit. For just $98 a month, you get a choice of any six styles each month, and the selection is huge. There's a thousand styles from more than 400 brands, including some of my favorite small brands like Naya Rea and Kim Shui. A rental service is a great and fun option if you want to try out a new style, but know you're someone who tends to buy something, wear it once or twice, and then have it collect dust in your closet. I also know inclusive sizing is always a struggle, but Newly offers sizes up to five x plus petite and maternity they have fast free shipping and returns as well as professional cleaning so you don't have to worry about laundry orders are also shipped in recycled recyclable and reusable totes with no plastic packaging and if you really love the clothes there's an option to buy with discounts up to 70 percent off newly is a great value at 98 dollars a month for any six styles but right now you can get 20 dollars off your first month of newly when you sign up with the code mina20 just go to n-u-u-l-y.com that's newly with two u's and enter the code mina20 and sign up to get 20 dollars off your first month that's n-u-u-l-y com newly with two u's with code mina20 newly subscription clothing rental change your clothes even though many of the celebrities we see today don't have the same cultural intrigue as jackie kennedy the ad tours as a whole are still very successful amassing millions of views per video and part of the reason is because people are interested in the lifestyles of the rich and famous most people can't afford a Picasso painting in their living room or a fancy indoor spa room or a $35,000 lighting fixture. And so watching people who can afford these kinds of amenities provides fodder for personal escapist fantasies. One show that really fed into this hype was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, which premiered in 1984 and ran until 1995, pioneering the celeb home tour genre on TV. Some notable special guests include Elizabeth Taylor, always at the scene of the crime, uh, James Brown, Twiggy, and Prince Albert of Monaco, Grace Kelly's husband. Uh, she was Grace Kelly, and he was just Ken. <laughs> the show was hosted by Robin Leach and took viewers on a tour of not just his wealthy guest homes, but also their summer homes, their garages full of expensive sports cars, and closets full of designer clothes. It was experiential, and he even brought audiences along into private planes, helicopters, yachts, and limos to see where these wealthy people vacationed. Judy Berman wrote about the show for Time Magazine. Mansions, yachts, celebrities with golden tans lounging poolside, host Robin Leach's foghorn baritone showering viewers with champagne wishes and caviar dreams. This is the fantasy lifestyles of the rich and famous peddled for more than a decade, beginning in the mid-80s when Ronald Reagan reigned, the economy soared, Wall Street was cool, and hippies who'd grown up to be yuppies conspicuously consumed. Leach explained to the New York Times in 1985 why the yuppies, or young urban professionals, were interested in the show. It's almost as though they were tuning in on the show to take notes on how they would take their money and spend it. 
Leach also said in a 1990 interview, fascination with wealth is eminently healthy. The American capitalist system offers the chance at the best of what there is, and lifestyles keeps banging home the values of the good life. The idea is work hard and you'll be rewarded. The audience sees it as fun and entertaining. The audience also learns something. That capitalism, though not perfect, is the best system. The Russians are learning that now. We say it's okay to better your life. We say that the American dream is still alive and well. So, Leach was fully leaning into that 1980s Reagan-esque type of spiel. But his comments about Russia are also interesting because the idea of the home has always been used as a political symbol. But during the Cold War specifically, many Americans showed pride in their idealistic suburban white picket fence type of home and looked down on the communal apartments in the Soviet Union. Communal. Communal? Why did I say communal? Because communist. Okay, communal apartments were buildings where multiple people or families lived in and they would share amenities like hallways, kitchens, and bathrooms. Anya von Bremsen, who's the author of Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, explains... The communal apartment was like a microcosm of Soviet society. People from all walks of life, sometimes absolute class enemies, living next to each other. The expression was densed up. The allotment was nine square meters per person. This like mid-century American importance of the house was also emphasized in the famous kitchen debate. So if you don't know what that is, the context is this. In 1958, the Soviet Union and United States agreed to set up national exhibitions in each other's nations as part of an emphasis on cultural exchange. The Soviet Union's exhibition in New York focused on their progress. So Sputnik satellites, statues of Soviet workers, and a model of an atomic icebreaker. However, the American exhibition in Moscow focused on lifestyle. They built a pavilion that featured American jazz, basketball, high-heeled shoes, sleek cars, abstract art, and Pepsi-Cola. At the center of the exhibit was a model house that represented the typical American home. Vice President of the time, Richard Nixon, was leading the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev through the exhibition on a private tour before it opened to the public, and they subsequently engaged in a pretty heated debate about capitalism versus communism. You can actually watch the debate since it was recorded and broadcast in both countries, but I just thought that was like an interesting example of how um, the home has kind of been used to pitch capitalism, American capitalism, um, to the world. So... Back to the appeal of the home tour. Another reason we like them is because we're nosy. <laughs> For parasocial reasons or just general curiosity towards the way other people are living, we want to know. It kind of like reminds me, I don't know if this is like the same for everyone else, but as a kid, I loved going to open houses in my neighborhood. Not even like because I was interested in like the architecture or because there was a very beautiful house that was being erected. Like obviously... That would appeal to me more if the house looked nice on the outside. I would want to know what's inside even more. But it was just like the idea of knowing the potential lifestyle the new neighbors would be having just based on the layout of their home. I don't know. It's just interesting. So yeah, I used to love going to open houses. And obviously, celebrities have that kind of outreach that makes them more relevant and known to more circles of people. So that generates more interest in them specifically. But this has been the case for a long time. So if you don't know what star maps are, there are these brochures that claim to identify the home addresses of celebrities, and they emerged in Hollywood in the 1920s. Though I also think that, like, isn't it true that 
property ownership is technically like public domain knowledge. So I don't think it's actually that hard to find out where celebrities are living if you go on to like certain housing databases. Is that correct? I've never tried searching for a celebrity's home address. I just thought that was the case. Anyways, Carrie Ferris and Scott R. Harris wrote about them in their book, Stargazing, Celebrity Fame and Social Interaction. Maps of the star's home are sold on almost every Hollywood street corner, and their continued popularity indicates that fans have always sought the information necessary to track down celebrities in their private lives. We use the term fan-staged encounter to describe the process through which fans seek out and use accessed information, effectively hunting down and even interacting with a celebrity in the course of his or her daily rounds. In fan-staged encounters, the fan is in control. And ironically, like when celebrities are more tight-lipped about their privacy, there's even more intrigue in what they're doing. We want to know what we can't know. Actress Greta Garbo is probably the most famous case of this in the 20th century. She was known to be super mysterious. She was constantly dodging the press. She avoided industry social functions. She rarely partook in interviews. She never attended movie premieres. She never signed autographs or answered fan letters. And she never went to award ceremonies despite being nominated. So for the Oscars, she was nominated three times. She never attended. And in 1954, she actually won the Academy Honorary Award which they mailed to her because, of course, she didn't show up. And yet, she was one of the most popular stars in Hollywood in the 1930s. Variety reported that even after her retirement in 1941, some people in Manhattan, including photographers, participated in Garbo watching, hoping to spot her as she took long walks in casual clothes and with large sunglasses. One woman told Variety she had followed Garbo for an hour. I didn't need to talk with her. It was enough just to be in her presence, to breathe the same air. Sidney Lumet even directed a 1984 comedy drama called Garbo Talks about a dying fan who wants to meet her, starring Anne Bancroft and Carrie Fisher. But going back to houses. In 2003, Barbara Streisand actually attempted to suppress photographs taken of her house. She sued photographer Kenneth Edelman for displaying a photo of her Malibu home. The photo was part of this project, which was illustrating coastal erosion in hopes to convince policymakers to take action. So it wasn't actually like a targeted attempt to boost fanfare around Barbara, but her legal action was dismissed under California law. And ironically, news of her lawsuit led more people to come visit her home. According to the BBC, her home received around 420,000 visits in a month. Mike Masnick of TechDirt coined her attempt to suppress attention that ended up bringing more attention to her as the Streisand effect in January 2005. The TV show that changed the celebrity home voyeurism industry, though, was MTV Cribs, which first aired in 2000. The show had no host. Instead, celebrities conducted their own tours, speaking directly to the camera, which resulted in a more intimate format. Crib show creator Nina L. Diaz said of the concept to EW, I was doing long-form music news pieces and documentaries, covering artists and celebrities in very structured interviews. As a fan first, I was always curious to explore more about these dynamic personalities and get to know them in more authentic and unfiltered ways. Back then, we didn't have much access to peek behind the curtain and in intimacy with our favorite artists. There was much more mystique surrounding celebrity images. So the writer Bobby Finger connects the success of Cribs with the launch of the short-form YouTube series I mentioned earlier, um, Architectural Digest Open Door, and Vogue's 73 Questions, as well as celebrity home reality TV shows that capitalized on this proven audience fixation with home environments. For example, 
Nina Diaz filmed an episode of Cribs in the home of Ozzy and Sharon Osbourne in 2000. Diaz actually told Sharon that her home wasn't just an episode of the show, it was a show in itself. She said to her, just put cameras here. Everything that you guys exchange like right now is fascinating. And then, coincidence? Less than two years later, the Osbournes premiered on MTV, introducing television viewers to what VH1 would later call celeb reality. The other difference, other than lack of host between Cribs and Lifestyles, was that Cribs was less a show about real estate and it was more a show on celebrities. As Manny Ray wrote, the Destiny's Child episode of Cribs is jarring, not because it's bad or anything, but mostly because it's amazing to see Beyonce be a goofball. The last reason I can think of for why we might all be invested in celebrity homes is because there's sort of like a schadenfreude-like pleasure from watching rich people design ugly homes. For example, the draw for many Cribs episodes wasn't just like the opulence, right? It was the tastelessness or the insanity. Many guests appear to be aware of this though, and they actively played into the joke. Ruth Kinane wrote for EW on Mariah Carey's Cribs episode. Call her Mariah Antoinette. The diva's Tribeca beige satin marble penthouse had everything an empress could desire, like doors made of gold, a special lingerie closet, and a mermaid room, which was, well, we're still not sure. After several wardrobe changes, Mariah unwound in a bubble bath with one of her pups, then pretended to put another in the dryer. Oh, Mimi, let them eat cake. Aside from cribs, there's an estate called the Grey Gardens Estate, which drew up a lot of public interest in the 1970s, because of how decrepit the mansions were. So if you don't know about this, Grey Gardens is this like 14 room house in East Hampton, New York, that was residence to the Beale family from 1924 to 1979. The National Enquirer and New York Magazine published stories about it in the early 70s, making the family into this like tabloid sensation. The two women, Edith Beale, known as Big Edie, and her daughter, also Edith, known as Little Edie, lived at Grey Gardens for decades by themselves. Then, on October 22, 1971, the county organized a raiding party of sanitarians, detectives, and ASPCA representatives to enter the home with a search warrant issued by a town justice on the ground that the Beals were harboring diseased cats. As Gail Sheehy reported for New York Magazine, cameras recorded the sorry scene. Cat manure covering the floors, a five-foot-high mound of empty cans in the dining room, the sterno stove on mother's bed, cobwebs, cats, and all sorts of juicy building code violations. The sanitarians had the dry heaves. It remained for the ASPCA man alone to report he'd seen human fecal matter in the upstairs bedroom. So, Big Edie's niece, who also happened to be the Jackie Kennedy Onassis, Gave $32,000 to repair and clean up the house out of concern and embarrassment, but work was held up by the ED's complaints over where to put certain belongings. Following all this, Albert and David Maisley's decided to direct a documentary on their life titled Grey Gardens, which screened at New York Film Festival in 1975. The documentary was then made into a musical in 2006 and a movie in 2009 starring Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange. The public interest was most likely because it was really hard to imagine how like these women who were once socialites who were literally related to Jackie Kennedy and Lee Roswell, who was also part of you know the Jackie Kennedy family and who was a socialite all in herself, how these women who were like quite literally the definition of old money, quiet luxury, could end up living in such squalor. 
The documentary's trailer also utilizes a lot of this narrative framing as well to get people to come see it. So in the trailer, they feature news headlines that remark on the riches to rag story of these two women and also beautiful pictures of the younger Edies when they represented the East Hampton ideal. The documentary didn't come without its criticisms, though. Writing in 1976, New York Times critic Walter Goodman argued that it was exploitative. The Maisleys were not out to ridicule the Beals, but the film presents them as a pair of grotesques. Why were they put on exhibition this way? Why not let them get by as well as they can now without this public display of their weaknesses, peculiarities, touches of wackiness? I think the exploitation argument can be made for a lot of these reality home renovation, extreme hoarders type of shows, unfortunately, like that mostly profile the homes of working class and middle class Americans. But it's clear that for celebrity homes, it's usually meant to be a flex. <laughs> these celebrities are proud of what they and their interior decorators have achieved. However, in saying that, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone agrees. Among the Architectural Digest tours, comment sections are filled with people either praising or criticizing the design choices. Recently, Lily Allen and David Harbour's home um, tour got some heat, especially as people compared it to David Harbour's previous home, which was also featured. Olivia Truffaut Wong wrote about it for The Cut. The townhouse includes a windowless master bedroom painted flamingo pink, which Alan calls a bed womb, two walk-in closets, guess who's is bigger, a media room with a tiger print carpet and tiger print sofa, and a personal sauna and cold plunge tub out back. Even if it's not your taste, there's no denying this home has personality. Of course, the internet is already divided in its opinions on the home, but I think we can unite against carpeting in a bathroom. That's just asking for trouble. For me, I love a table made of the wood from Winston Churchill's yacht as much as the next girl. <laughs> but the true luxury in these homes for me is the number of personal amenities they have. So many of them have like an indoor pool, a private tennis court, a bowling alley, a home theater, a ball pit. It's like something that I've been thinking about a lot actually, especially after watching Succession. True wealth, I feel like, is being able to exist in a completely separate world from the rest of the population. It's about not taking public transport. It's about flying private instead of commercial. And it's about creating public spaces within the home so you don't have to interact with the actual public. Some celebs, though, have taken it a step further in their decorating by turning their personal spaces into retail-like spaces. For example, RuPaul's Drag Closet is designed, lit, and merchandised like an upscale department store, and Bretman Rock's Closet looks like a well-stocked Sephora. <laughs> While not featured on 80s Open Door, Barbara Streisand's house has also been written about, and apparently in her basement she has a mini shopping mall featuring a gift shop, an anti-clothing shop, a doll shop, and a sweet shop that serves frozen yogurt and popcorn. Each shop also comes with old-fashioned shop fronts that store her collection of personal items. Streisand told Harper's Bazaar in 2010, Instead of just storing my things in the basement, I can make a street of shops and display them. Honestly, this is kind of a slay to me because... I hate the idea of hoarding things. Granted, I'm literally not able to store anything I'm not using because New York City real estate keeps me humble. But I feel like it's such a waste to hold on to things you don't use or even look at. Um, but part of me thinks that rich people subconsciously fetishize these retail spaces, especially because a lot of the time they don't do their own shopping anymore. They have personal shoppers. They have personal assistants uh, who do errands for them. So Retail becomes like this recreational cosplay in a similar way that in Elon Musk's TED Talk last year, he talked about how he was a couch surfer. Meanwhile, his net worth is literally around like $300 billion. 
He said, I don't even own a place right now. I'm literally staying at friends' places. If I travel to the Bay Area, which is where most of Tesla's engineering is, I basically rotate through friends' spare bedrooms. Sure. Um, but back to these personal retail spaces. Khloe Kardashian's pantry, which looks like a fancy grocery store, is probably the best example of this phenomenon. In her pantry, there's sets of open-top wooden boxes baskets, lazy Susans, clear canisters, and all of them are placed on shelves, which are evenly spaced. There's food in these containers as well, and there's multiples of everything, so it's like a very beautiful doomsday shelter. Kelly Pendergast wrote a really good essay about it, so I'm going to read a part. It's a piece of theater that allows consumer goods to regain the appeal and shiny productness that wore off them in transit. Without the department store, we must stage our own closets. Without the supermarket to enable the child's formative encounter with the object of desire, the cereal aisle where Captain Crunch and Count Chocula call out like sirens from child height shelves, it's up to mom to reanimate the dead book Fruit Loops by decanting and displaying them and bringing some spectacle back. When the warehouse is your house, you have to revive the commodity yourself, spank its cheeks a little, and turn it back into a product. Kelly also brings in the fact that Chloe is a reality TV star, and so by nature of her job, her home also literally operates as a storefront. Chloe's real work, or should I say her paid work, is to be herself in front of cameras, in front of millions. Her pantry's job in this formulation is to be a place where food can be seen on screen. This explains a lot. The tiered racks where cans of corn sit proudly in their own stadium seating. The repeating fluorescent strips shining a hard white light on every cubby like a Dan Flavin nightmare. It's a display case, a jewelry box, a home shopping set. Chloe's selling that corn on behalf of the brand partnership managers who organize the deal and whichever other entities are taking a cut. Speaking of the Kardashians, I've made a whole video that was inspired by Kim Kardashian's very beige house um, a while ago. But the Kardashians have favored this like kind of modern architecture style, which I think a lot of people in general attribute to being a wealthy person style. And the reason we think of modernism as like more for wealthy people is because these days modernism is also very like heavily tied with minimalism. And so there's like a lot of clean lines, not a lot of clutter, lots of white and basically lots of features in a house that do not really go well with um, children or pets unless you have a house cleaner, which many people do not have. Modernism is one of those design aesthetics that are like very clean <laughs> and it looks really bad if it's not clean. So yeah, the natural train of thought is like if you have a modern building, if you live in a modern house, you probably have money to be able to maintain that kind of house or you're just like really type A, and uh, that's commendable too. So now I just want to talk about modern farmhouse. Um, because, and, and trust me, there's going to be a whole thorough line about why these are things are all connected. But this was one of the most detested interior design aesthetics that was submitted, which I think is hilarious because I am someone also who has felt a weird way about modern farmhouse. And I don't know, it's just very validating to hear the same kind of opinions reverberated back at me. It's one of the more popular design aesthetics promoted on HGTV TV shows. So if you don't know what HGTV is, it's this uh, television network that um, has a lot of like reality based uh, home renovation TV shows. 
So let's talk about some of the design elements of Modern Farmhouse. So we're all on the same page here. Uh, Modern Farmhouse includes sliding barn doors, shiplap, an open floor plan, word art and signs, Edison bulbs, and Tuscan kitchens. It's also extremely marketable. Joanna Gaines, who is the co-host of Fixer Upper, she co-hosted with the help of her husband, Chip. They came out with a line of products available exclusively at Target that kind of fall into this like modern farmhouse, farmhouse chic vibe. So linen sheets, stoneware mugs and plates, brass frame mirrors, faux greenery, etc. And actually in May this year, the wallpaper designer Hovia declared modern farmhouse the most popular interior design style in the country. A sentiment which is echoed by architects, designers, and home builders who say they regularly field requests from clients eager for a clean look with a neutral color palette that manages to feel both traditional and contemporary. Fans of the style often describe it as classic and timeless, but Alexandra Lange, who is an architecture and design critic, she says, it's basically modernism in drag. Um, she said that the style manages to hide a lot of modernist elements like a big open windows and open floor plans behind creature comforts like gables and covered porches. She said that Americans are drawn to the look because it has all the trappings of modernism without actually looking particularly modern. She said Americans aren't really comfortable buying modern houses. That is rich person's architecture. So there we go. Modern farmhouse has kind of been the middle class version of modernism. Kate Wagner, who is also the creator of the McMansion Hell blog, which is one of my favorite websites on the interwebs, uh, definitely worth checking out. But she explains why people like modern farmhouse. She says there is an American fetishism for folksiness and rural life, and there's a longing for a rural life that comes into the modern farmhouse. It is alienating living in an exurb when the only thing you encounter is a huge strip mall. You have to make up for this barren, alienating landscape by devising some kind of homeliness in your house. Laura Fenton adds, writing for Curbed, Modern Farmhouse gives us license to do the work ourselves, to be homesteader light. Those of us looking for a crafty outlet can express ourselves by refurbishing an old dresser, repurposing discarded window frames, or wrapping mason jars with burlap. Who needs an expensive interior designer when the aisles of home decor stores are packed with whiskey barrel tables and vintage kitchen canisters just begging to be purchased? As for why people don't like it and why so many of my listeners don't like it, um, I picked out one person's response that I will share with you all. Okay, um, I'm from Kentucky, so I may be like really biased. But I think the absolute ugliest trend in the whole wide world is probably what they like to call farmhouse interior because it's just kind of funny, but, like, I grew up in, like, an actual farmhouse, and it's so different from what they're calling it. Like, why is everything white? Every single thing is white, and the colors are white and black, and that's it. And it's, like, so minimalist, and... Being in an actual farmhouse, it's very cluttered, and there's, like, so many beautiful colors and homemade items, like, handmade items. And I don't know. I just feel like, oh, my Lord, I just hate it so bad. And then white kitchens that are, like, all white, and they have black accents. Like, and Colin Ray Dunn's farmhouse makes me want to vomit, too. I don't know. This isn't like a good style analysis or anything. Oh, Lord. I just I can't get into all of it. It's really like I just hate it. 
I know that's bad. And I shouldn't probably hate on people's style. But I just think it's so ugly and so inaccurate. And it just doesn't do justice to what the actual farmhouse is. I think if it called itself Modern Interior, that would be fine. But calling yourself Farmhouse because you hung up, like, a picture of a line art chicken and because you have scripture quoted on your wall, just that that ain't Farmhouse. Anyways, this was a little too long to get to my point, but I hate Farmhouse. Something you may not know about me is that I've always loved fiction writing. It's just a creative practice that I've enjoyed doing since I was like five. Masterclass has been really great because I recently got to take their creative writing class with Margaret Atwood and she's just so inspiring and gave me so many good ideas. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Annual memberships start at $10 a month and you get unlimited access to every instructor, thousands of online lessons, exclusive content insights, and much more. There are over 180 classes to pick from, everything from fashion design with Marc Jacobs to cooking classes with Gordon Ramsay, with new classes added every month. I took the class with Margaret Atwood because I love her books. But something surprising was that she has a lesson on crafting complex characters and the questionnaire that's included in the class guide has also been super helpful for my acting work too. Whether you want to advance your career, start a passion project, or just learn a new skill, Masterclass has you covered. And you can gain any new skills in as little as 10 minutes either on your phone, computer, tablet, smart TV, and even audio mode to listen on the go. I like watching a lesson or two when I'm done with work for the day, but don't want to just scroll through social media like a sloth. It just makes me feel productive, and the classes are fun and entertaining too. The amount of money it costs to take one class from these instructors would be insane, but with a Masterclass annual membership, it would cost you only $10 a month. Get unlisted access to every class, and right now, as a highbrow listener, you can get 15% off when you go to masterclass.com slash mina. That's masterclass.com slash mina for 15% off an annual membership. Masterclass.com slash mina. Why I also think it's very unpopular is just because of how popular the design is. We're kind of just like inundated with this kind of interior design everywhere we go. And that kind of like leads to more um, fatigue and exhaustion towards it because, yeah, it just feels like it's everywhere. And actually, Kate Wagner puts most of the blame on HGTV for popularizing it, but writes... It took two decades for HGTV and its ilk to streamline the process of creating design hegemony, to perfect the concept of having multiple shows congeal around the same aesthetic rather than let them exist at the whims of their individual hosts, as was more the case in the 2000s. While previous eras of design, think mid-century modernism, were spearheaded by architects, interior designers, and other tastemakers, in the late 90s, capital A architecture lost interest in the home. Deconstructivist ideas and new high-tech forms were better suited to museums and universities, and a coalition of real estate developers, home improvement and furniture stores, and TV decorators stepped in to take their place. The worlds of high culture and popular consumption in residential design have never been more separate, and in this critic's opinion, both suffer as a result. So one may be able to say that one of the most uh, deterring things about the farmhouse aesthetic is how just aggressively capitalistic it is. This is a written response I received. Hi, Mina. In my opinion, the ugliest interior design trend is the pastelli eclectic Danish style that has been super trendy for the past couple years. The entire aesthetic revolves around consumerism, and so many TikToks I've seen showcasing the style are centered around specific 
quote unquote, must have products and links to Amazon storefronts. People end up spending a ton of money on colorful and quirky ornaments, but it is so clearly a passing trend for many people. As much as I love maximalism, I think its rise in popularity has led to so much overconsumption and people are just buying stuff that will be in a landfill in a year's time when minimalism is back in. This pastel capitalist style just feels the most blatant of it all, like a very uniform corporate attempt at fun and colorful rather than something genuine or authentic. Lots of love from the UK, Daisy. Okay, I chose this response to read because I think it is quite controversial, Daisy. Um... Because I think it's really popular and I also do have some friends who've decorated their houses and apartments in this kind of style. I think it's a very fun style. Um, but I totally also get what uh, Daisy is saying. So they attached some photos for me in the email to look at. But uh, just so some of you who may not understand what this uh, style is, it's like this very popular Pinterest, Instagram type of design aesthetic recently. Lots of like pastel colors, squiggly lines, uh, checkered rugs, or just like rugs in like fun geometric shapes. Um, some motifs include flowers, seashells, hearts, and butterflies. If you want to look more specifically into it on Aesthetics Wiki, it is called uh, Danish Pastel. I think that there are elements of the style that are very nice. It's not personally my aesthetic, not my design choice, but I can see the appeal. But I also think that it's very valid, like the point that Daisy made in that this style is so commodifiable and now it's become sort of like the Gen Z version of modern farmhouse in the sense that so many of these like unethical furniture companies are just pumping out um, furniture pieces and objects, home objects that are part of the style because they know it's so marketable. And again, I think it's just very fatiguing to see this kind of monopoly that certain interior design aesthetics have at a certain point in time because it leads to less creativity. Like, I feel like there are so many more companies that create um, home objects that are in line with the Danish pastel style than there are that align with my own personal style. Like, again, like, you know, I have a Victorian fetish, but I also really like art deco because, you know, I'm a 20s and 30s girl. And either way, there's just not really any modern furniture brands that take the Victorian or art deco um, styles and reinterpret them for like a modern audience. Really, like, the only way that I can find furniture and home objects that I like is through antiquing or flea markets or going on Facebook Marketplace. But for used stuff, I can't find anything new. And maybe that's better for the environment at the end of the day than I'm not finding anything new. But, yeah, I can just see how this can feel so fatiguing um, because interior design is supposed to be this fun um, way to express your own home but sourcing furniture is way harder than sourcing fashion. And I feel like at the end of the day, there are more fashion brands than there are furniture brands. And so you're kind of limited to what you can see on the market, which is just not very diverse at the moment. And I don't know if it ever will be because I do understand that like furniture does take a lot of effort to design and to manufacture. And a lot of companies are probably not going to take the risk of choosing you know, a interior design aesthetic that is not super popular at the moment because 
there's less of a guarantee that they'll actually be able to sell products. Like I totally understand it from a business point of view, but when I'm talking about this, I'm also talking about like, you know, the quote unquote sustainable um, home object manufacturers. Meanwhile, there are tons of Amazon stores, um, tons of like Temu stores that are copying this design aesthetic. And I think it's a very easy design aesthetic to copy and manufacture on a large scale in a very unethical way, which unfortunately cheapens the overall design aesthetic and kind of brings this like, I don't know, capitalistic lifelessness to it. Um, Another person actually submitted an email to me about Ikea, specifically, um, They live in Turkey and they said that in Turkey buying even basic furniture is very expensive and most of the people who live there, there are only two options really. And it's either to choose the more Dubai glam Ottoman palace kind of style or uh, Ikea. (laughs) And that's why quote unquote everyone's home is the same. With some of these tours, a question that comes up at least to me, is how much of this is actually staged for the camera? I mean, obviously no one's going to invite AD over if there's like a chair in the corner of their bedroom that has a pile of clothes and that chair is literally not used for anything except for to hold piles of clothes. And if there's makeup scattered all over the vanity and if there's cat toys everywhere on the floor, or maybe I'm just describing my own apartment, I don't know. Um, In these tours, every object is going to be set dressed in a way that's organized and aesthetic. But then you may be wondering, what's the point of giving these highly staged tours to begin with if the point of a home tour is to invite the viewer into your actual domestic life? Well, the easy answer is that unfortunately the content about most of these celebrity lives is mediated, predetermined by PR agents run through the PR filter. Like anytime a celebrity does a big interview, um, it's usually pre-scripted. And even stories on late night talk shows, which you assume are kind of more impromptu, those are also pre-scripted. The actress Darby Stanchfield, she actually explained this to Slate. The whole thing is planned out. And once you arrive at Jimmy Kimmel Live, the producer then comes to your dressing room and fills you in on what Kimmel has decided will be talked about. But back to Holmes. Cribs is a little notorious for scripting. For example, Jerule rented a mansion for his Cribs appearance and its owner later sued him for making a huge mess and allowing a film crew into a place he didn't actually own. Bow Wow claimed he owned a bunch of nice cars on the show, but they were actually branded with the name of a Miami luxury car rental service, so I don't know how that escaped the producers. Uh, Robbie Williams borrowed Jane Seymour's house for his segment on Cribs. 50 Cent rented the fancy cars he showed off during his appearance, even though he was actually very rich when he appeared on the show, so he could have afforded his own cars. I don't know what happened. And JoJo, who is 13 years old and an early 2000s pop star, was actually living in hotels and pretended her uncle's house was her own house. Before you say anything negative about these people, though, they were probably encouraged by the show's producers to rent properties. Rapper Redman, who had his own Cribs feature, told in an interview years later that MTV originally wanted him to rent a house for it, but he declined. The irony, though, is that all of this producer subterfuge is actually really pointless a lot of the time because I feel like when a celebrity is actually genuine, people eat that shit up. Like, they love that. Um, for example, Redman, he still participated in Cribs, but he showcased where he was actually living, which was his humble, mildly messy Staten Island duplex home. 
He also told an interviewer that the Cribs crew showed up earlier than expected, so he had just woken up when they arrived and didn't have time to properly clean up his place. One of the show's producers, Eric LeClerc, said of the episode, I remember when we got this footage back being like, what the fuck are we going to do with this? He was himself and put no airs about him. I was like, this is funny. This is kind of hilarious. But I remember saying to the editor, is anyone going to want to watch this? Are we going to get in trouble? And surprise, surprise, audiences loved it. They loved that it was different, that it was relatable and unapologetic. The episode ended up becoming one of the more popular ones in the series. Redman, who still lives in the duplex, said of the episode's success, Once you do things and keep things 100% with yourself, you can never lose. And that's just what happened. That's what we want. We kept it 100. And we kept it truthful all the way. It taught me a lesson to stick to my guns and to be true to myself. Don't be somebody you're not. Don't do things that are not you. Dakota Johnson's house tour, which she did for AD, is another example of authenticity winning. So her AD video went even more viral after she admitted that the bowl of limes in her kitchen was staged. She confessed this on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. I actually didn't even know that they were in there. I was giving the tour and went into the kitchen and they it was set dressing. I'm actually, I'm allergic to limes. Like, <laughs> stop it now. <laughs> yeah, I'm mildly allergic. Oh, and honey melon. So another green thing. It's even funnier because in the original video, Dakota actually spotlights the limes saying, I love limes. I love them. They're great. I love them so much. And I like to present them like this in my house. Which is actually like extremely relatable to me because if I'm nervous about something, usually I'll like draw attention to it. Um, like I'll draw more attention to it, which is why I always point out when my curtains are uneven. Some people were disappointed at her confession, sure, but most people saw it as a positive thing overall. Olivia Harrison wrote for Refinery29, all this is exactly why the internet can't get enough of Dakota Johnson, especially during these times. So if this is Johnson at her worst, she's what? Lying to YouTube audiences about liking limes simply because she was bombarded with bowls and bowls of them and didn't want to be rude? I'll take it. Despite these success stories, producers and PR managers avoid complete authenticity because it can't be controlled, unfortunately. There are times when it does backfire, and I guess like the headache of managing a situation is not worth it for them. Um, for example, one PR scandal was at the 2017 Met Gala. Celebrities like Bella Hadid, Dakota Johnson, Rami Malek were caught via social media smoking cigarettes in the bathroom. In general, there are a lot of people who get upset about smoking, period, but the major issue here was that they were smoking indoors, which is something that is illegal uh, according to New York City law. I think it was the 2003 Smoke-Free Air Act. The pictures outraged museum donors and the New York City Health Department, rightly so. Uh, Dr. Mary Bassett, who was New York City's health commissioner, wrote a letter to executives at the Met saying, we were dismayed to read reports that some celebrities chose smoking as their fashion accessory and flagrantly violated New York City's smoking laws. All visitors to public places deserve protection from secondhand smoke, including people who are visiting places like the Met. So, needless to say, it's not always great to have all your shit aired out in public. But I think when it comes down to house tours, people like to see real personality, either in how the host is addressing the audience or in how they choose to decorate. While we're on the topic of celebrity personalities and, you know, celebrity dramatics, uh, I think an important caveat to this discussion is the idea of celebrity property feuds. 
I don't know if anyone is also fascinated by celebrity property views, but I think that they are kind of just really funny because they bring celebrities down to our level. I mean, like I'm of the category of people who believe that celebrities are just like us, except richer. And so, you know, they're prone to do silly pedestrian things as well, but it just puts their silly pedestrian petty neighborhood conflicts to the forefront, which is always a good time. You know, there's nothing that contrasts more to like a red carpet moment than a Karen moment spurred on by your neighbor's tree falling in your driveway. (laughs) So I'm going to share some personal favorite stories here. So I recently learned, for one, that there is a very robust community on Reddit called Tree Law, like r slash tree law. So laws regarding trees. And you'd be surprised at how confusing and how interesting tree law is. As just a recent example, so during the WGA strikes, uh, there was this image that went viral. Basically, someone on Twitter posted about how the Universal Pictures trimmed a bunch of trees that were previously giving the picket line shade. Um, and they did this right before a 90 plus degree weather week. So a lot of people went to the natural conclusion that this was purposeful. It was like a tactic to get the picketers to go home. So this tweet actually got the attention of Los Angeles City Controller Kenneth Mejia, Mejia, who investigated the situation. And he wrote, with cooperation from the Bureau of Street Services, we have found that no tree trimming permits have been issued over the last three years for this location outside Universal Studios. Also, the city did not issue any tree trimming permits for the latest tree trimmings. So exposing the fact that Universal did not get a permit to trim these trees and whoever is responsible for this will be charged an administrative fee starting at $250. Yeah, it's just like interesting because trees are public property. And so to deal with like trees, you have to deal with like, you have to answer to the law. Um, There was another post that went viral, completely unrelated to union striking. But in New Jersey, this homeowner cut down 32 trees on their neighbor's property, apparently to get a better view of New York City. But according to the law, there is a $1,000 fine for each tree cut down without a permit. So this incident was posted onto Twitter, obviously. It's insane behavior, so it went viral, and it led to this like tree discussion where basically like people were saying that They could have been charged a $32,000 fine, but also there is apparently a provision that requires mature trees to be replanted, but the area where the trees were chopped down is on a mountainside that's inaccessible by car. So the property owner who cut down the trees could be responsible for paying to build a road to replant the trees on top of the cost of replanting trees. And since these trees were so old, they would be very difficult and costly to replace. I don't know. I think we all like tree law because um, it kind of brings out this like environmental justice side of ice. Like it's it like awakens my inner Lorax because I'm like, you can't just chop down a tree and not answer for it. You know, anyways, back to celebrity fumes. So there was a case That wasn't settled until March 2017, but it was between Sean Lennon, 
the son of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, versus Addie and Gary Tomei, who are parents of Marissa Tomei. And the situation started because the Tomeis claimed that the roots of a tree in front of Lennon's Greenwich Village home was damaging their neighboring townhouse, quote, cracking the stoop, breaking the railings, and coming through the basement floor of their townhouse. They also claimed that the tree was both diseased and partially hollow. And this legal battle took nine months before a judge ordered Sean to remove the tree in September of 2016. But it wasn't until March of 2017 that Lennon removed the tree and settled the $10 million lawsuit. And this case was really popular for a celebrity property feud because of how much money the settlement was, the length of this legal battle, and the fact that, you know, lawyers love talking about the tree law. Moving away from tree law, um, there was this other case that took an even longer amount of time to settle, but it was between Jimmy Page, who's from Led Zeppelin, um, and Robbie Williams from Take That. So... Jimmy Page appealed to Kensington and Chelsea Council's planning committee with a two-page letter asking them to stop a construction project at Robbie Williams' house on the basis that the reverberations would disturb his own delicate Victorian home. Page defended his home as, quote, one of the most historic buildings in the borough. Williams' home renovation plans, by the way, was for a super basement involving an underground pool, a home gym, and a shower alcove. While Page initially said that his beef with Williams wasn't personal, he later called him idiotic and tasteless. So <laughs> the housing battle lasted from 2015 to 2022, seven years with uh, Robbie Williams emerging on top. Though the court ordered compromise was that workers had to use 19th century hand tools as to reduce the reverberations of the renovation. Okay, and then this story is pretty funny. Oh, I guess it's like, it's not funny for the people involved. But, you know, it's just like such an insane type of story that it, it like comes off as funny because you're like, in what world would this happen? But Katy Perry has been afflicted with some kind of real estate curse. So the first issue that she had was... In 2014, she struck a deal with the LA Archdiocese to buy an 8.5-acre property for $14.5 million, and this property was a convent. And shortly after, Silver Lake businesswoman Dana Hollister engaged several of the sisters to make a separate deal. This led to a drawn-out legal battle <laughs> with questions arising of whether or not the Archdiocese or the three nuns had the authority to sell the property. In the midst of this long legal battle, nuns took to local news to try to tell Katie to not buy their property or, you know, the, the convent, I guess, is not technically their property. Sister Rita Callanan even told the LA Times in 2015, I found her videos and if it's all right to say, I wasn't happy with any of it. Sister Catherine Rose Holzman, who told Fox 11, Katy Perry, please stop. Uh, she was 89 years old. And according to the Washington Post, after she begged Katy Perry not to buy her convent, she collapsed and died. Eventually in 2017, Katy Perry and the Archdiocese did prevail over Hollister, who was forced to pay $6.5 million in damages for attempting to sabotage Katy's deal. But the saga was not over. Her agreement with the Archdiocese required that she find a replacement for the convent's house of prayer, which is still in use by local clergy. 
Apparently, she had difficulty finding a replacement, and in August 2019, her option to pay the $14.5 million expired. But a spokesman for the church said that they're still open for a deal. The second <laughs> property issue here was that just this year, August 8th, 2023, news broke out that Katy Perry and her husband, Orlando Bloom, were being sued by Carl Westcott, an 83-year-old veteran who claimed he was of, quote, unsound mind when he sold his property to the couple for $15 million back in 2020. Westcott, who suffers from Huntington's disease, was undergoing back surgery at the time and was under the influence of opiates and painkillers when Bloom and Perry's business manager, Bernie Gudvey, presented him the documents to sign to sell his property. Seven days after signing, Westcott, quote, started to feel mentally clear again and regretted his decision. So Orlando Bloom and Katy Perry's response was a threat to sue that has devolved into what is now an ongoing legal battle three years and running. So I want to conclude with talking about some of my favorite Architectural Digest uh, tours. And granted, I haven't seen all like 140 something house tours. So I'm sure there's like a great tour that I haven't seen um, and that, you know, is still great. So please let me know in the comments like what your favorite tour is and also what's your least favorite tour just to be fun. But I was watching a bunch today and... I really love any house that has a lot of personality, even if it's not like particularly my favorite type of interior design. I like when I can see that they actually tried to convey something interesting. So the best example I can think of of a house that I personally would like not live in, but I think is great was uh, Debbie Ryan's house. Um, it's just like really quirky and they have a lot of like fun colorful kitschy embellishments like they have a corn stool they have um a bust of Dwayne the Rock Johnson again I would never have a bust of Dwayne the Rock Johnson in my house I would never have a corn stool in my house but I like that it shows their personalities you know I also really liked uh Dita Von Teese's house that's kind of more in line with my own personal interior design it's very opulent. It's full of antiques. I love her kitchen. That's probably my favorite room in her house. I have a fetish for a nicely decorated kitchen. I'm not going to lie. I also like Troy Sivan's house a lot. It's not necessarily something that I saw myself liking. Like it's a little bit more contemporary for my taste. But when I was watching it, I was like, I think I could actually really enjoy living in here because it was so cozy and the interior designer that he worked with, the architect that he worked with, really knew how to light up places and really like maximize light, which is really important for me. So I liked that a lot about his uh, house. And I also liked the little courtyard he had. Ugh, I love a courtyard. I do like David Harbour and Lily Allen's house, apartment townhouse. Even though, you know, the carpet in the bathroom is a lot for me. And also the tiger room was a lot for me. But again, the kitchen was really nice and it had personality. And also they were really fun as a couple narrating. So I give points for entertainment as well. Chloe Feynman had a really funny one that came out. And again, like, I mean, I think all of these places, like they're genuinely beautiful. It's just like my particular taste, right? Like if I had all the money in the world and could design my own dream house. But Chloe, she kept it really real and she said that she was renting, which I think 
is so funny because I don't know if anyone else has done a video where they were renting and she like showed her messy kitchen drawers and she talked about like regrettable Etsy purchases. Like I am not really familiar with her work because I don't watch SNL, but I have a lot of respect for her and I think she's like hilarious and is one of those things again where it's like she was authentically herself and that's why it was such a fun video. As for apartments that I don't like or houses that I don't like, I don't know. I can't name any names particularly. I guess Kim Kardashian, I don't really love her house though. She didn't do an AD tour, I don't think. I don't know if her tour was through AD. I think it was with Vogue. But yeah, just because like it didn't really have much personality. I think for me, that's the biggest thing. If your house has personality, like that's fine. I love it. I love what you're doing. Like Cara Delevingne's house, again, like tons of personality. And you can tell like, even if they have an interior decorator, even if they're working with an architect, they do have like a significant input in the overall decisions. And that's how it should be because I hate the idea of like someone with a ton of money just not caring about their home because if I had that money, I would literally make my home like the most beautiful home for me personally, subjective taste ever. Ugh. So yeah, maybe one day. Anyways, thank you all so much for uh, listening in and for, you know, being a part, being a part of my day and having me be a part of your day. I'll see you next time. I hope you have a lovely rest of your day and yeah. Bye. <laughs> If you want to keep up with Highbrow, you can follow the Highbrow Instagram. It's highbrow.pod. This episode was written in collaboration with Ella Gray. It's been edited by Sophie Carter. Music is by Olivia Martinez. And cover art is by Lindsay Mintz. Mm-hmm.